This is Michael Easley in context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com. And now your host, Dr. Michael Easley. Well, welcome to the program today, and it's my great privilege to have with us Dr. Gary Chapman. Uh, Gary is a full-time pastor, speaker, author, extensively uh, travels around the U.S. and abroad, primarily known for his five languages of love. And uh, Gary, thanks for being with us today. Well, thank you, Michael. It's good to be with you. It's great to hear your voice. For those who maybe don't know about uh, your primary work, your, your uh, five languages of love, talk to us a little bit about sort of the genesis of the five languages, how that started in, in your practice and your writing. And it's kind of gone viral, I guess we'd say, today in ways you probably never intended. Yeah, it's been amazing how God has used that book. You know, Michael, I had been counseling probably 15 years, and I knew I was hearing the same stories over and over in my office. One of them would say, "Uh, well, I just feel like he doesn't love me or she doesn't love me. And the other would say, I don't understand that. I do this and this and this. I mean, why wouldn't you feel loved? And I, I knew there was a pattern to all of it, but I didn't know what it was. So what I did, I actually sat down and read about 12 years of notes that I had made when I was counseling people. And I asked myself the question, when someone said, I feel like my spouse doesn't love me, what did they want? What were they complaining about? And their answers fell into five categories. And I later called them the five love languages. So I started using this concept in my counseling that people have different love languages and you have to learn to speak the language of your spouse if you want them to feel loved. And it was amazing. Couples would come back and say, hey, we've been trying this. It's making a great difference. Hmm. And then I started using it in small groups, and the same thing happened. So probably five years later, I thought, you know, if I could put this concept in a book, write it in the language of the common person, I could help a lot of people that I would never have time to see in my office. So that's how it all started. And the book's been out over 20 years. Every year, it sells more than the year before. Wow. <laughs> it's sold over 8 million copies in English. It's been translated now in 50 languages around the world. So never, ever expected God would use it in that way. But I think, uh, Michael, it speaks to the deep human need to feel loved. And if you're married, the person you would most like to love you is your spouse. Mm-hmm. So it helps couples do what many couples would like to do, and that is meet each other's need for love. Interesting. You said translated into more than 50 other languages, yeah. yet these five, as you call them, languages cross uh, national ethnic lines? You know, that's what surprised me most, to be honest, Michael. You know, my academic background is anthropology, cultural anthropology. I have an undergrad and a master's degree in anthropology, and I understand cultural differences. And when the first publisher came, who happened to be Spanish, and asked permission to publish this in Spanish, I said to Moody Publishers, who published my book, I don't know if this works in Spanish, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I discovered this in middle America. And they said, well, they read it, and they, and they say it works. And I said, well, okay, then let, let's go with it. Well, they did, and it became their bestseller, and it's been their bestseller yeah. ever since. And then came the French and the German and on down the line. So, you know, I'm sure that the translators adapt, you know, to the culture. But the five basic languages seem to be fundamental to human human nature. Okay, now I read this, you know, 25, something, sitting in our 34 years of marriage almost, and so it's been 20-plus years. And I haven't brushed up for this, so I'm going to go. It's, I know it's acts of service, uh, non-sexual touch, gifts. Gifts. Uh, or I guess words of affirmation. Mm-hmm. What I leave out? Quality time. Quality time. 
Like yeah, them. hey, that's good, Michael. Well, that's good. you know, I've I've done this to you before in public, not in this situation. But when we we've shared the platform, I, I told you I read them and I said, "Hey, mine's acts of service, Cindy. Love me like this, and that's all I need." And she said, she went through. Well, I like that one. That one. she likes all five, <laughs> and she still won't settle on a primary one. So just thank you very much, Doctor Chapman. Well, that does mean that whatever you do, you get credit for it, Michael. Well, that's okay. Now you now you got that's me. That's the positive side. No. Hey, you've been doing this a long time. What trends are you seeing from, uh, let's say, 40-ish years ago to uh, today when you're talking to couples, individuals? What, obviously, the core hasn't changed, but what, what are the nuances that have changed? You know, the basic, it's been very interesting. The basic concept is the same. And we haven't changed the book very much, to be honest with you, through the years. We've done a few little revisions here and there, but we've basically kept it the same because it's communicating so well to people. Now, one of the new things that we have just done is to do a military edition of the five love languages. Uh, The last 10 years, I've been on a number of military bases. And as you know, Michael, the divorce rate uh, among military marriages Mm -hmm. is much higher than civilian marriages. And a lot of it has to do with the stress and the deployments that just separation, coming, you know. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, one of the things this book does, of course, we use all military illustrations, but it, it teaches them how to communicate any one of the five love languages while they are deployed. Wow. So that if they learn each other's language when they're together, they're speaking it. They can continue speaking it while they're deployed and stay emotionally connected with each other. So that when they do come back together, it's much easier because they've stayed connected emotionally. I'm really excited about this book, and it's been received really well with the chaplains and others around uh, around the country. So very exciting. Well, that's great to hear. You you and I both have a great love for our military and uh, what these men and women do for for so little pay and so little attention, and uh, this will be a great resource for them. I'm, I'm thrilled to look forward to looking at that myself. Now, let's back up a little bit. You started this the first publication in the in the 80s? I think The Five Love Languages was first published in 92. 92, but you had a, a prior book to that. Yes, um, I had two books before that. Right. I had a book called Toward a Growing Marriage, which is still in print but has a new title. It's called Now the Marriage You've Always Wanted. Right. And uh, then I wrote a book called Hope for the Separated, Wounded Marriages Can Be Healed. And that book is written to people who have separated you know, physically, that one of them's walked out. And I'm saying, okay, it means your marriage is in serious trouble, but it doesn't necessarily mean divorce. Mm-hmm. And I'm challenging them to think reconciliation and talking about how to go about seeking reconciliation. And I make it very clear I'm not talking simply about you know just moving back in. I'm talking about dealing with the issues that led to the separation so there can be genuine reconciliation. So that, I've been very encouraged with that book. Almost every seminar I lead around the country, I'll have one or two couples come up and say, you know, we were separated five years ago or three years ago or ten years ago. And somebody gave us your book, Hope Mm. for the Separated, and God used it to help us begin to think differently. And and we we got back together, we recommitted ourselves, and and we're growing now. So that's been very encouraging. That's great. That's fantastic. So then the five love languages in 92, then you did an iteration for children. 
Yes, uh, we had one chapter in that original book about children, how the concept applies to children. And parents kept saying, you know, you gave us a little bit, can't you give us more? Mm -hmm. So I teamed up with Dr. Ross Campbell, who is a Christian psychiatrist, who incidentally just uh, went on to heaven this past year. Yeah, I heard that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Uh, we teamed up. He had had 30 years experience Mm -hmm. working with children and teenagers and uh, wrote the five love languages of children. It's the same five languages uh, and how this influences or impacts the child's anger, the child's discipline or the parent's discipline, and the child's ability to learn or openness to learn. And Michael, what really surprised us about that book, we never anticipated this because we wrote the book for parents, but a lot of public schools have been using that book in teacher workshops because teachers know that if a child feels loved by the teacher, the child's going to learn more from that teacher. Huh. So that's been very encouraging. Interesting. And then you went on to adapt it for teens? Yes. So many parents said to me, you know, we read your book on children. Really, really helped us. But now our child has become a teenager. And we're doing the same thing <laughs> All we've bets always are off. <laughs> yeah, same thing we've always done, but it's not working. And, and they say, does the love language change when they get to be teenagers? And my short answer is no, it doesn't change, but you have to use different dialects Mm. because whatever you've been doing, they consider childish, and they're not a child now. So if physical touch is their language, you've been hugging and kissing, now you're going to hug and kiss, and they're going to push you away. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean they don't need to be touched, but you've got to use more adult touches elbows, you know, <laughs> high fives, wrestle them to the floor. <laughs> yeah. uh, but we deal in that book uh, with uh, all the changes that are taking place in the teenager's life, both physically and intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and how you get through all of that, you know, and make sure that teenager feels loved. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Michael, let's face it, uh, basically all parents love their children, love their teenagers. But there's a lot of children and teenagers who do not feel loved, right. and that makes all the difference in the world. From the pastoral vantage point, it seems that the teenagers are having a, a much more difficult time than even in the 70s and 80s. I think they are, and I think a lot of it has to do with the culture and where we are in the culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no boundaries, there's no morals, you know, and, and our Christian teenagers even get caught up in all of that. And, and they're asking questions, you know, why, why is this wrong? Why shouldn't I do this? You know, what's wrong with this? So, yeah, I think it's much more difficult for teenagers in today's world. And as parents, uh, you know, the first step is making sure they feel loved. And if they feel loved, they're more open to our instruction. They're more likely to enter into serious, you know, discussions with us. And, and we can we can be have a greater influence on mm-hmm. their lives. You know, all the research indicates that, parents still have the greatest impact on the teenager's life. Uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, it's the peer pressure, but parents still have the greatest impact. So we must accept that and utilize it. When uh, we were both in Chicago at, uh, for a brief period of time, when I was in Chicago, you came out with the five languages of apology. Yep. And I remember talking to uh, Greg Thornton, uh, the mm-hmm. senior vice president of publications there, and asking him, is a book on apology going to work? <laughs> and this thing went crazy, Gary. Yeah, it did. We've changed the title now. The newest title is When Sorry Isn't Enough. Enough. Hmm. But it's still the same concept, that there's different ways to apologize. You know, Michael, that uh, that really shocked me. Uh, that book actually was born in the mind of a counselor here in town where I live. 
uh, Dr. Jennifer Thomas, and she came to me with the idea and said, you know, I think just like people have different love languages, people have different apology languages. Hmm. And uh, she explained, you know, that what one person considers to be an apology is not what another person considers to be an apology. And as soon as she said it, I resonated because they've been in my office for years. And uh, the wife would say, well, I would forgive him if he would just apologize. Huh. And he would say, I did apologize. Yeah. And she would say, you didn't apologize. And he would say, I told you I was sorry. And she said, that's not an apology. <laughs> 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 so I, I felt like she had something. So we teamed up and did research for two years. Uh, we asked thousands of people two questions. When someone apologizes to you, what do you expect to hear them say or do? Second question, when you apologize to someone, what do you typically say or do? And their answers fell into five categories. I promise you, Michael, we weren't looking for five, okay? Right, right. <laughs> I like five. <laughs> uh, but, but they fell into five categories, and we call them the five languages of apology. And incidentally, when I looked at the scriptures, all five of these are demonstrated throughout the scriptures. Huh. And uh, so the basic idea there is that, you know, if you have a different idea of what it means to apologize, and you simply share your idea, or you apologize in your way, the other person may well question your sincerity. And that's the question in the back of our minds anyway when someone's apologizing. Are they sincere, or are they just trying to get this behind them? But we tend to judge sincerity based on how they apologize. So this is helping a lot of people, you know, apologize more effectively. And also, if you understand that there's five different ways, it should help you if your spouse or someone else is apologizing in any one of the five to say, okay, that's not what I'd prefer to hear, but at least they're apologizing. They're doing it their way. So it should make it easier for people to forgive. So, uh, yeah, it's been very encouraging to see the response to that book. How do we keep from making that sort of a, a conditional forgiveness, a conditional acceptance yeah. of an apology? Yeah, well, we shouldn't. And that's one of the points that, I'm, mm -hmm. that we make in the book is that, you know, the natural tendency, if they don't apologize in your language, is to question their sincerity. Right. But as Christians who've been forgiven, we choose to forgive them and give them the benefit of the doubt. You know, they're at least apologizing, so let's give them the benefit. Let's go ahead and forgive them. And, and you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But, you know, forgiveness is the first step in rebuilding a relationship. The wall gets removed, and now we can begin to love and serve and you know, do other things to build a relationship. We can't measure someone else's sanctification. We can't measure you know, whether they're maturing or not in the Lord. We tend to, of course, take our, to use your vernacular, our love language and project it. Well, if Cindy doesn't love me that way, she doesn't love me. Yeah. In, in all sorts of ways, Gary, we, we're faced with the same thing in a marriage where people are I wouldn't say desperate, but they've they've given up to the point he, he's never going to change. She will never change. Yeah. And maybe it's not tough love where I need to move out or separate, but yeah. how do they live in that? I call it the parallel lives. You know, they, they, they come yeah. together for a meal, for a wedding, for, you know, some event, but they live on these two parallel tracks. What do you say to that yeah. husband or wife who's tried so many times to break in, to re-engage, to come a different angle, but again and again and again, it just seems like the door's shut. What do you tell them? Yeah. Well, you know, I think, Michael, many times people do feel like that they have tried everything. Uh, I deal with that concept in a book I wrote a few years ago called Desperate Marriage. 
uh, you're married to an alcoholic, you're married to someone that won't talk to you, you're married to someone that won't work or someone that works all the time and never ever in, you know, engages with you, uh, or, you know, or, or verbally abuses you. I mean, really tough, tough stuff. And, and I'm saying in that book, uh, it is true that you cannot make your spouse change, but you can influence your spouse. As a matter of fact, we influence each other every single day by the things we do and the things we say. So the book is on how to be a positive change agent in a very, very difficult marriage. And one of the approaches I take is that you make sure you know their primary love language. You start giving heavy doses of it, even though emotionally you're not motivated Mm -hmm. to do that because you're ready to give up. Let me interrupt you for a minute there. This is something I think many couples, that concept is foreign to them, Gary. Yeah. Uh, so, so unpack that a little bit more for us, because yep. what you've just said sounds like a baby step for some people, but for some, that's nuclear physics, you know. Yep. No, no, you're exactly right, because by nature, we love those who love us. I'll be kind to you if you be kind to me. But Jesus said, love your enemies. Okay, that's about as bad as it gets in a marriage. Mm-hmm. He's your enemy. So if I take that seriously, and I open my heart, the love of God, remember, is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, Romans 5, 8. Open my heart to God and say, I want to be an agent, your agent, for expressing your love to my spouse. God pours his love into us. We don't have the feelings, but we're choosing to speak their language, words or what, whatever their language is. And we're going to do that over a period of time, not for three weeks and see what happens. We're going to commit ourselves to loving them as God loves us while we were still sinners. Then about two or three months into that, you say to your spouse, on a scale of zero to 10, how much love do you feel coming from me? Mm-hmm. And if they say anything less than 10, you say, well, you know, I really want to be a better husband, a better wife. Uh, give me an idea on what, what I could do that would make you feel more loved. You let them give you an idea, and it'll be in keeping with their love language. And, and you'll have to have your armor on, right? That, that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Be ready. But you do that until they start, until they give you about a nine or a 10. At that juncture, you know that you're getting through to them. They're feeling your love, even though they may know in their own mind that they don't deserve what you've been doing. That's the juncture at which you make a request of them. And you say to them, you know something that I would really like for you to do for me? And because you have been loving them unconditionally over a period of time, and they've affirmed that, they are very likely to respond to your request. And when they do, you're shocked. And a week or two later, you make another request. You're essentially teaching them how to love you, even though they don't know anything about the love language concept. Hmm. But your love stimulates love. You know, the scriptures say we love God because God first loved us. The same principle applies in human relationships. Somebody has to start the love process. And I've seen that over and over again, uh, where hard, harsh people who are unengaged do become engaged whenever they start receiving love in their language over a long period of time. When you're working on a project like the the, the five love languages of the military, how, how do you get to the point that you're saying, okay, this is the next uh, project, this is where God's stirring my heart or need-based? How do you get there? Well, you know, Michael, for me, it's kind of come in the normal flow of my life in ministry. Like that book for the military, uh, so many chaplains said to me, you know, Gary, we've used this original book, and God has really used it in the military, and they bought hundreds of thousands of copies and distributed them to the military. 
But what would really be good if you could do a military version mm. and particularly focus on the deployment aspect. And so that's what motivated me in that, you know. It, it's typically people coming to me from different places, you know, saying similar things about something that's needed. Uh, for example, we've, we've just finished a, a manuscript. I think it'll be out maybe in September. I don't even know what we'll call it, but uh, I wrote it with uh, a gal in, in California and uh, did a lot of research on it. But how to raise relational children in a digital age. Wow. I mean, this is a huge thing right now in our culture. Uh, so, you know, and, and we're saying, you know, certainly you don't get rid of, of technology. We have to make the most of technology, but we have to learn how to teach our children to relate to people, not simply to a machine. In fact, I walk down the aisle before church, and I see people, you know, with their iPhones out, and I say, if you get any good information, let me know, okay? <laughs> I'll, I'll need to try that. <laughs> yeah, I think with our children... One of the main issues, one of the key issues, is balance. And the particular age of the child is important. And the parent is the one who's responsible for setting guidelines. There has to be balance. There has to be limits. And if you expect that of children and you apply that, and there are consequences if they don't follow that, children learn. Children do what we teach them to do. Well, we've been talking to Dr. Gary Chapman. Uh, Gary is an author, a conference speaker, a counselor, a friend for many years. Uh, Gary, you and Carolyn, uh, we're going to fast forward. You're uh, 85, you're 89, you're 92, you're sitting on uh, on your front porch in the Carolina mountains perhaps, um, looking over your life, your, your children, your grandchildren, your history, your legacy. What will you regret and what will you remember? You know, I think what I will remember is the time we invested with our children. They say to us, they're both grown now. They, uh, our daughter has her own children. Our son and his wife don't have children. They've tried, but, but can't have children. But they still say to us, you know, the memories we have of sitting around the table talking after we had meals are still, you know, just vivid, positive memories that we have of childhood. And then the time my son and I took trips, because we would, every summer he and I would take a trip together, two or three days, and do something together. Uh, those memories are there, and I think the investment we made in their lives, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm very grateful for that. And um, mm. I don't know in terms of regret, you know, I don't, I don't have any super regrets in my life, to be very honest with you. God's been good, you know, our, to, to us and to our family. And I think my deepest desire from this point going forward is that I can end well, mm -hmm. you know, and, and continue to do whatever God has on the drawing board for me. And when it's time to go, I'm ready to go, you know, whenever that is. Mm -hmm. But I do want to be faithful. I don't have any desire to go to Florida and sit in a rocking chair, you know, and wait to die. Mm -hmm. uh, people ask me, what would you like to do if you retired? I said, well, I'd like to do what I'm doing, yes. you know. <laughs> yeah. And as long as I have energy, uh, I want to keep on counseling people, writing books, speaking, working here in the local church, ministering to people. As long as I have energy, that's what I want to do. And when God's through with me, then I'm ready to go. So I, that's my prayer, is that I can look back and not have any deep regrets. That's wonderful, Gary, and it's a privilege to call you my friend. I appreciate your ministry in my life. Uh, Cindy and I have benefited from your friendship, from your, your labors, your books, your conferences. We love you and appreciate you, sir, and uh, give your wife greetings for us and thanks for being on the broadcast with us today 
Well, thank you, Michael. Keep up the good work. I appreciate your ministry. Blessing, sir. You know, I was privileged to have two mentors, Floyd Sharp and Dr. Howard Hendricks. Uh, Floyd was a mentor for over 15 years and the prof for nearly 30. And to sum up what Floyd would say is to Michael, make memories with your children and make good memories when possible. And he was a folksy psychologist who often underscored, you were going to have regrets in life, but work to make some good memories, to build some intentional good memories in your kids' lives. Just along the line, Gary has said, and in regards to the prof, he died doing what he loved doing best, and that was spending time with his students. Even as his health was failing, he still enjoyed being around young minds asking good questions. The question haunts me. I don't know if it haunts you, but I want to live with the minimal amount of regret. And too many of us have some dark regrets from our past life. Know this, God is a good God. He is kind. He forgives. Redeem the time you have now. Don't wait. Don't live with the regret. Do something to change that. Make good memories with your spouse. Make good memories with your kids. Even your adult kids. Try to make some new good memories. You'll never regret that. This is Michael Easley in Context. For more information, go to michaelincontext.com.